0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a lot of great articles to talk to you about today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First First link. link
2: From AP News, we have a new medical breakthrough. In a first, U.S. surgeons have transplanted a pig heart into a human patient.
1: Oh. Okay. (laughs) I mean...
2: It was inevitable, wasn't it? Yeah, it yeah. kind of was inevitable, but it is a medical first and a last-ditch effort to save his life because that's, that's when you bring in the pig hearts, right? Right. It's not option number one. <laughs> <That's>... Right. <laughs> yeah, we're out of ideas, and it was highly experimental, but they did the procedure, and a few days after, they said he's doing well. The patient is known as David Bennett, a 57-year-old Maryland handyman. He knew there was no guarantee the experiment would work, but he was dying and he was ineligible for a human heart transplant. Quote, it was either die or do this transplant. I want to live. I know it's a shot in the dark, but it's my last choice, Bennett said a day before the surgery. Hmm. On Monday, three days later, he was breathing on his own while still connected to a heart lung machine to help his new heart. And the next few weeks are definitely going to be critical as he recovers from the surgery and doctors monitor how the heart is faring. There is currently a huge shortage of human organs donated for transplant, which is driving scientists to Mm. try to figure out how to use animal organs instead. For example, last year, there were just over 3,800 heart transplants in the U.S. alone, which was a record number, according to the United Network for Organ Sharing, which oversees the nation's transplant system. Dr. Muhammad Mohuideen, the scientific director of the Maryland University's Animal to Human Transplant Program, said, if this works, there will be an endless supply of these organs for patients who are suffering, which is both amazing and horrific to have in the same sentence, right? Because endless supply <laughs> kind of gets into this whole agriculture farming kind of thing. But prior attempts at transplants like these, which, by the way, have a really cool name, xeno transplantation, but these prior attempts have failed largely because human bodies rapidly reject the animal organ. And the difference this time is that the Maryland surgeons used a heart from a pig that had undergone gene editing to remove a sugar in the cells that's responsible for that hyperfast organ rejection. Hmm. The doctor was Bartley Griffith, and to practice, Griffith had transplanted pig hearts into about 50 baboons before offering the option to Bennett. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, from an animal rights standpoint, pretty horrific, but, you know, it wasn't like, have a theory. Will you human
0: patient be my first? Sure. yes,
2: as a human patient, he was, but he had been practicing for sure.
0: So what this means is if we are breeding a bunch of pigs for pig hearts, we have extra bacon that (laughs) we have to get rid of. What else are we going to do with it? Yes, this vegetarian
2: concedes the point. (laughs) It
1: it makes me wonder if we're going to approach a world where there's just a bunch of different types of viable hearts, and there's just a whole club of heart transplants patients who are like, well, I got a monkey heart, and they got a pig heart, and they got a a whale heart? I don't know. That (laughs) would not work. (laughs) Next link. Next link. link. This article comes to us from newatlas.com. It's titled, Evolution Study Suggests DNA Mutations Are Less Random Than We Thought.
2: Ooh.
1: So chance plays a big part in evolution and conventional thinking goes that dna mutations will randomly arise in an organism's genome and if these new traits happen to help the organism survive and reproduce then those mutations will be passed down to the next generation but is there a pattern to where in the genome dna mutations occur to investigate researchers from uc davis and the max planck institute grew hundreds of thale crest plants in the lab then sequenced their genomes and compared where DNA mutations had taken place, and a non-random pattern seemed to emerge. Hmm. Gray Monroe, lead author of the study, said, We always thought of mutation as basically random across the genome. It turns out that mutation is very non-random, and it's non-random in a way that benefits the plant. By growing the plants under controlled lab conditions, the team sought to remove the non-random influence of natural selection, ensuring that plants that normally wouldn't survive in the real world wouldn't be weeded out by any negative mutations. Within the hundreds of plant genomes, the team identified over a million mutations, which seemed to be what? concentrated in certain parts of the genome. That left patches with consistently low mutation rates, as low as one-third of those in the other regions. When the scientists checked which genes were located in those patches, they found an abundance of essential genes, including those involved in cell growth and gene expression. Monroe says, these are really the important regions of the genome. The areas that are the most biologically important are the ones being protected from mutation. Intriguingly, these areas also seem to have stronger DNA damage repair mechanisms, indicating a kind of reinforcement method to ensure these crucial sequences remain functional. Detlef Weigel, senior author of the study, says the plant has evolved a way to protect its most important places from mutation. This is exciting because we could even use these discoveries to think about how we protect human genes from mutation. A 2014 study found that mutations occur more frequently near repeated sequences, while another from 2019 identified mutation hotspots in recombination sites where the chromosomes from each parent pair up. The researchers on the new studies say that this work could eventually lead to improvements in engineering better crops, and even controlling human diseases caused by DNA mutations such as some types of cancer. But any applications in these areas are no doubt a long way off
0: sure but that's what you got to say on every study is like we don't know what this could be good for but it might change everything
1: right we certainly haven't already tried this 50 times and are just waiting for the right person
2: okay hold on what if the mutation is a favorable one
1: um i'm not sure based on this i mean what it seems to be saying is that Overall, there are certain key areas of DNA which nature or evolution have deemed super essential and have, you know, borne up the test of time. And so even if you get positive mutations in there, I think what it's saying, and obviously this is all extrapolation from one study, but it's possible that even positive mutations could have a harder time persisting or getting in there. Mm. The thing is, like, it's... I don't have any problem as a podcast commentator extrapolating and saying (laughs) that humans probably do this too, because why not? And also, I've always wondered how it is that we don't just randomly constantly mutate and then just, you know, huge swaths of us die off because we have bizarro mutations that don't make any sense, right? So there's some level of intuitive sense that this makes to me. Mm. But um, in terms of actually changing those core areas of our DNA... I'd be fine not messing with that. You know, we can get other mutations.
0: (laughs) We want to get wings. We don't want to get a complete fundamental change of our biology.
1: Exactly. That would be bad, probably, most likely.
0: Super
2: speed, not kidney failure. Okay, thanks. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link.
0: link. All right. Well, we've talked before on this podcast about how Bitcoin mining and cryptocurrencies in general take up a huge amount of energy, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you're against that or if you're just not a fan of crypto bros, then you will probably find this next article from The Guardian. Very delightful indeed. (laughs) It's called Panic as Kosovo pulls the plug on its energy guzzling Bitcoin miners. Ooh. So Kosovo in particular is a very interesting case study when it comes to Bitcoin mining due to a number of socio-political and economic factors. To start, Kosovo has a huge natural reserve of lignite, which is a low-grade form of coal, and 90% of their domestic energy production comes from lignite. So overall, they have the cheapest energy prices of any country in Europe, Hmm. which Hmm. that alone makes them an ideal place to set up your Bitcoin farm. You're going to be paying less for the electricity Mm -hmm. you use. But on top of that, the government heavily subsidizes the cost of electricity in Kosovo because most of its citizens live in extreme poverty and couldn't afford it otherwise, even given how abundant the lignite already is. Mm. On top of that, the northern region of Kosovo is populated by a Serbian majority that does not recognize the government as legitimate. And while they haven't been in open conflict for a while, you may recall the war in Kosovo, one of the stalemates they've apparently settled on is that the Serbian portion of the country simply doesn't pay their electric bill. Oh. And the government keeps them lit up anyway. Wow. Yeah, because I think basically the government's position is, well, we could cut them off, but then that would inflame tensions and then there mm-hmm. would be riots and protests and then the whole war would flare up again. So we're just, you know, we're going to let them have this one. Wow. I love how that's an option. Take note, USA. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> So energy in northern Kosovo is effectively free, which is obviously very tempting for crypto miners. Mm -hmm. But believe it or not, there are downsides to putting your incredibly expensive computer operation in an unstable country. (laughs) This past December, one of Kosovo's two aging power plants had to be shut down, resulting in severe energy shortages and rolling blackouts across the country. And admittedly, we here in Texas don't really get to look down our noses at them for that, given what happened with our own energy (laughs) good a year ago. And in fact, they actually fared a little better than we did because they were able to import energy from outside their borders, though it was at a much higher price. But this crisis was apparently the push their government needed to say, hang on, why are we subsidizing these thousands of Bitcoin mining operations when our own citizens are sitting in the dark? Yeah. So in January, Kosovo announced a 60 day ban on all crypto mining operations in the country and police and customs officers have already begun conducting raids on known (gasps) server farms and seizing hundreds of pieces of hardware. And most of the miners do seem to believe that the 60-day ban will be extended because social media groups dedicated to crypto mining have since been flooded with offers to sell off equipment based in Kosovo at drastically reduced prices. Yikes. The process is especially tricky because, not surprisingly, almost none of the people who own mining farms in Kosovo actually live in Kosovo. So (laughs) packing everything up and moving it to a neighboring country is not something they can easily pull Mm -hmm. off. But even if they could, Kosovo is not alone. Last September, the 10 most powerful regulators in China vowed to kill off what was at that time the world's biggest cryptocurrency mining industry. And just a few weeks before Kosovo pulled the plug, Icelandic utility regulators began turning away all new mining operations due again to power shortages throughout the winter. Meanwhile, in the U.S., the Congressional Energy and Commerce Committee announced that they're going to hold a hearing on the issue, which is not as bold of a move as some (laughs) of these other countries are taking. But the article does provide an opposing perspective from Jason Dean, chief Bitcoin analyst at Quantum Economics, who believes that the current teething problems of the industry are outweighed by the benefits crypto provides, including the offer of instant financial transactions without the use of a third party and a certainty that there will be instant settlement on your transactions. And most mining operations are making promises to switch to renewable energy sources as soon as possible. But (laughs) Alex DeVries, a Paris-based economist, says his research shows that only about 25% of them currently are. So, you know, I guess, as in everything, figure out your own risk tolerance. It's an (laughs) investment. It could pay off. It could go under. That's how it works. I know what my risk tolerance is, and it does not involve the whims of the Kosovo government. (laughs) But your your mileage may vary, you know?
1: Yeah, that's super complex. You know, I've been tracking the the crypto evolution for a while and have become very interested in these clean carbon coins, such as Hmm. uh, Tezos. And there's a couple others, but Tezos is one of the biggest ones. and it is not a super sustainable plan, even though I personally feel that a lot of the ecological concerns around Ethereum and Bitcoin are overblown, like it's literally 0.06% of all Mm. energy usage. So I think, you know, it's partially like a big oil psyop. But that aside, (laughs) BTC (laughs) and Ethereum are insanely wasteful and and incentivize really perverse behavior. So Mm. I'm kind of like, I still think it's pretty funny, even though I do think crypto is part of the future once we solve these problems.
0: Right. And that was sort of what the Jason Dean guy was basically saying. He's like, yeah, it is bad right now. I'm not going to deny that. But everything Mm -hmm. is bad in the beginning. And then we figure out how to make it better. So, you know, maybe they will. Fingers crossed for them. Uh, I hope the people in Kosovo have heat. That's, I think, probably pretty yes. important too. So that
1: uh, <laughs> I'm on board with that. Prioritizing yep. the people who actually need the power as opposed right. to profiteers.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs>
2: Next link.
1: Next link.
2: All right. Vox has an essential read called, after the Beanie Baby bubble burst. Oh. Who remembers Beanie Babies? Show of hands.
1: I mean, I got some from McDonald's. Yes,
2: yeah. I had those same ones. They sat in the back of my car. Got sun <laughs> faded. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Those were known as the teeny beanies, and they do feature in this article. But the real crux of this is asking the question, what happens when the frenzy ends and the world doesn't value your valuables? What is something mm-hmm. worth, right? And yeah. That's what Karen Baker counterfeit beanie baby expert says motivates her (gasps) work. She wow. separates the valuable babies from the pretenders. And of course, the value of the real ones is debatable, too. Mm-hmm. So Baker, she's 54. She can't quite pinpoint why she dedicated over 25 years of her life to Beanie Babies. <laughs> I mean, the frenzy around them faded long ago, as these types of things yeah. tend to do. Maybe she has an addictive personality. Maybe it's the thrill of the chase. But whatever the case, <laughs> she's kept at it. And she sold Beanie Babies to Pay for an emergency appendectomy about 20 years ago, and even recently to help pay for her son's wedding. She's even one of three women behind a Beanie Baby pricing guide and a Facebook group for collectors with tens of thousands of members. Wow. They also run a Beanie Baby authentication service called True Blue Beans. They charge $5 per Beanie Baby for a sticker that will say whether the toy is counterfeit. For $15, they'll put it in a tamper-resistant display case and tell you whether it's museum quality, mint condition, or even magnificent. (laughs) Oh! The customers prefer that they don't give negative marks to the beanies, but they have to be honest. If it's a dirty beanie, they'll say so. Now, if you are of the age where you didn't live through the mania in the 1990s, It's hard to explain just how much of a fad it was, but there were people who genuinely believed these toys would be the key to their retirement or their kids' college tuition. Oh, yeah. Some people stole litters of them. And at least one person was reportedly killed <laughs> in a beanie-related dispute. Okay. Wow. And it's not that beanie babies are worthless. There are collectors in the hobby that are willing to pay quite a bit of money for the right ones. But why some people are willing to pay anything is, I mean, it's a, it's a stuffed animal, right? It's basically mm-hmm. a sack of fabric with beans in it. But It's also unfathomable to think about how we value most things, whether it's a piece of art or a blunt-smoking digital ape. Right. (laughs) And, of course, it was a bubble. And in hindsight, bubbles rarely make sense. It's a flaw in the human character, according to Jeremy Grantham, a market historian and bubble expert. No one is immune, no matter how Mm -hmm. smart you are. Okay, for those who didn't live through it, what the heck is a Beanie Baby? They were the creation of a man named Ty Warner, who is the elusive billionaire behind toy company Ty Inc., which he founded in 1986. Beanie Babies took off in the suburbs of Chicago, which is right outside Ty's headquarters, and then it just started spreading. And to the extent that he could, Warner manufactured the craze around the items because he was in it to make money, mm-hmm. right? Warner was able to pull supply strings to create a sense of scarcity around them. Mm -hmm. They would even retire certain beanies, which would up the ante even more, not just on the primary market, but the secondary resale market, where prices of the $5 items went into the hundreds and thousands of dollars. There were early stage blogs, magazines, trade shows. This was a huge part of people's lives. And if you don't remember this particular photo, it's an estranged couple named Francis and Harold Mountain. Jennifer knows exactly the
0: one. I do, I know (laughs) the photo, I
2: do. And a judge ordered to separate the animals on a courtroom floor during divorce proceedings. And you can see this picture where it's two grown human adults looking at a pile of Beanie Babies on a courtroom floor while they squat and go through them. And to be fair, some of the lore around the photo isn't entirely accurate. The moment wasn't about the money, right? They weren't trying to say, like, this is us dividing assets, even though they were referred to as assets in the divorce Mm -hmm. case. But it was a revenge thing. The mother had been awarded primary physical custody of the children. It was an ugly divorce, and so he wanted to take half the Beanie Babies out of spite. So, you know, it's a great thing to read if you lived through the 90s. And even if you didn't, it's still important to revisit because whether you're going all the way back to the tulip mania, to something like what's going on in the NFT market, you know, we've still got this unbridled optimism and a rush to claim ownership over something new. but. You know, there are people who are into both. <laughs> there is this one guy, Susco was into Beanie Babies as a kid. He began collecting them again as an adult. And his current project, are you ready, is to create NFTs of his Beanie Babies, where people can buy the NFT and therefore ownership rights, but his (laughs) company would still hold on to the physical item unless the buyer later traded the token back in. So it essentially separates (sighs) ownership from possession, which, boy, that sounds like it's splitting hairs. But, you know, history repeats itself. I hope.
0: If you want want an NFT of a Beanie Baby, now is your time. (laughs) I can't wait until we have the inevitable picture of the can't tankerous divorce of people splitting up <laughs> their, their dope smoking monkey nfts <laughs> that's gonna be amazing i can't wait for it uh, next link next,
1: next link. link so this article comes to us from theguardian.com and it's a left turn from the last topic into space matters titled nasa begins months long effort to focus james webb's space telescope
0: oh we haven't talked about this much i'm excited because the articles keep coming up but it's just like they're about to launch and now they've launched and now it's going good and like we just keep not talking about it so i'm (laughs) I'm excited tell me
1: yeah so for those of y'all who don't know about the james webb space telescope it is the biggest baddest most complicated telescope we have launched into space yet and it was really like an incredible incredible feat of engineering I didn't look into it too much as it was happening, but other people told me that the entire time, all of the engineers that were interviewed looked like they were going to throw up the entire time. <laughs> yeah. They are asked about it. Um, so the fact that this is launched is actually incredible. Yeah. So the next effort is to embark on a months-long painstaking process of bringing its newly launched James Webb Space Telescope into focus. A task due for completion in time for this revolutionary eye in the sky to begin peering into the cosmos by early summer. Hmm. So, mission control engineers at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, began by sending their initial commands to tiny motors called actuators that slowly position and fine-tune the telescope's principal mirror. Consisting of 18 hexagonal segments of gold-plated beryllium metal, the primary mirror measures 6.5 meters, a much larger light-collecting surface than Webb's predecessor, the 30-year-old Hubble telescope. The 18 segments, which had been folded together to fit inside the cargo bay of the rocket that carried the telescope to space, were unfurled with the rest of its structural components during a two-week period following Webb's launch on Christmas Day. And if you haven't seen a photo of this thing yet, it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It basically looks like a massive honeycomb. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like gold plated, so it really does look like that. And this thing had to automatically, programmatically unfold itself. So really incredible. These segments must now be detached from fasteners that held them in place for the launch and then moved forward by about a centimeter from their original configuration, which is a 10 day process before they can be aligned to form a single, unbroken, light-collecting surface. Lee Feinberg, the Webb Optical Telescope Element Manager at Goddard, said, The alignment will take an additional three months. Aligning the primary mirror segments to form one large mirror means each segment is aligned to one five-thousandth the thickness of a human hair. Wow! And he says... All of this required us to invent things that had never been done before, such as the actuators, which were built to move incrementally at minus 240 Celsius or minus 400 Fahrenheit degrees in the vacuum of space, and the telescope's smaller secondary mirror designed to direct light collected from the primary mirror into Webb's camera and other instruments must also be aligned to operate as part of a cohesive optical system. If all goes as planned, the telescope should be ready to capture its first science images in May, which would be processed over about another month before they can be released to the public. Oh, because
0: they don't want to admit what they want to find. <laughs> yeah. do you have to process it? You could send that thing out right away. But, uh,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like the scientists would be like, hey, here's a little preview. Just take a look. But no, there's yeah. aliens in there. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They...
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the $9 billion telescope, described by NASA as the premier space science observatory of the next decade will mainly view the cosmos in the infrared spectrum, allowing it to gaze through clouds of gas and dust where stars are being born. Hubble has operated primarily at optical and ultraviolet wavelengths. Webb is about a hundred times more powerful than Hubble, enabling it to observe objects at greater distances, thus farther back in time than Hubble or any other telescope. Astronomers say this will bring into view a glimpse of the cosmos never previously seen, Dating to just a hundred million years after the Big Bang, an estimated thirteen point eight billion years ago. Mm-hmm. So we might get to see, you know, what exactly was really happening around the Big Bang. Yeah. And, we'll we'll uh, see
0: that the aliens used to exist, but don't anymore.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> And I mean, just to think of a piece of alignment that's you know one five thousandth of yeah. a human hairs, ripped, <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, And there's that's...
1: nine billion dollars in that project. Yeah. Holy holy yeah,
0: yeah. I'd want to throw up too. I don't. Blame them. <laughs> yeah, <That's... laughs> yeah.
1: I, I want to vomit. Scariest just about
0: delivery it. <laughs> day ever, for sure.
1: <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link.
0: All right. This next article is called "The Secret Life of a Super Recognizer." And it's probably pretty self-explanatory, but a super-recognizer is someone whose ability to remember and recognize faces is in the top 1% of the population. Oh, what a handy trick to have. Good Lord. (laughs) It it does turn out to be pretty useful, yeah. So the article tells the story of Yeni Seo, who as a young child would often surprise her mother by pointing out a stranger in the grocery store and remarking that it was the same person they'd passed on the street several weeks earlier. When they watched movies together, Sayo would often recognize extras in the film who had appeared fleetingly in the backgrounds of other films. Oh my god, Which seems like a very cool thing. I think if my child were doing that, I would be pretty interested. But apparently neither she nor her mother ever thought it was anything special. Huh. But as Sayo got older, things started to get a little awkward with the rise of social media because she's being inundated with all these photos, she'd meet somebody at her university for the first time and realize that she'd already seen that person in someone else's Facebook photos. Oh my gosh. She says, I'd know in my head, oh, you're that person's sibling or you used to date so-and-so. But I also knew it'd be really creepy if I said (laughs) that out loud. (laughs) It's almost like,
2: Having a built-in predilection towards looking like a stalker just based on the
0: fact that you can retain that visual memory Mm -hmm. so well. Well, and and you got to feel for it because, like, she can't help it. She recognizes the person. Mm -hmm. You can't not remember something that you remember. (laughs) On the other hand, her skill did come in handy when the thrift store where she worked was dealing with a habitual shoplifter. Sayo's boss showed her some grainy overhead video footage of the perp, and the next time the guy came in, she recognized him immediately. So, you know, a guy got arrested, (laughs) which I guess is helpful. But then, by coincidence, she participated in an online study by Dr. David White at the FACE Research Lab at the University of New South Wales, And her score on the online test was so high that White contacted her personally and invited her to come to Sydney for further study. Whoa. He first became interested in the field while studying a rare condition called prosopagnosia, also known as face blindness. He was intrigued by the fact that people with this condition can still recognize objects just fine. It's only faces they have trouble with, meaning that the area of the brain that stores faces must be a unique group of neurons. And so far, White's research has shown that facial recognition skills are at least partly genetic because identical twins show similar performance levels, but also that the eye tracking of super recognizers tends to spread out more around the face, suggesting Mm. that they're taking in more details as they look at someone instead of focusing on just one feature. Mm. Unfortunately, one of the main things hindering White's research has been the difficulty in finding super recognizers for testing, which is why he and his team created the online screening tool which is linked in the article if you want to see how you measure up. Full disclosure, I scored just slightly below average, which is not entirely surprising, but it's still weirdly disappointing. Like, I know I'm not great with recognizing people. I know that from my life. But part of me was like, I still want to win.
1: (laughs) You recognize competition.
0: Exactly. I know what that looks like. (laughs) So to this day, around 100,000 people have taken the test, and SEO is still in the top 50 of all time. Mm -hmm. And while she still lives a pretty normal life working in a pathology lab, security and law enforcement agencies around the world have started recruiting people with superior facial recognition capabilities due in large part to White's research. As Mm -hmm. just one example, you may recall the case of a former Russian spy being poisoned with nerve agent in the UK. The CCTV footage from that event was examined by a team of super recognizers working for the London Metro Police And their input was instrumental in catching the perpetrators. Wow. And lest you think things have gotten any easier for criminals during the pandemic, Seo says she's just as good at recognizing people even with a face mask on. So you can't escape her. If she's out there and she knows you, she's going to get you. But only if you visit her pathology lab, I guess. She's (laughs) putting her skill to use. But it, it is really fascinating, though, that like the human face is such a unique thing. That sort of evolutionarily is so Mm -hmm. important to us that it gets its own region of the brain. It's not the same as recognizing an image of a landscape or anything Mm -hmm. else. It's a completely unique part of your brain. Yeah,
1: yeah. I guess it also explains why it can be so hard to tell animals apart versus people, right? Like if you don't know the animals and they're the same breed or like you look at a pack of crows, Mm -hmm. I can totally remember somebody out of a group of people, but I could not do that for crows, which makes sense. (laughs)
0: I just read a book, actually, weirdly. It was fiction. It was kind of an absurdist satire thing called The Constant Rabbit. And part of the premise of this book was that there were huge anthropomorphized rabbits living among people and they had all of their socio political problems. But one of the big plot points of the book was that humans had a really hard time distinguishing one rabbit for another, but the rabbits also had a really hard time distinguishing human faces. And so Mm. you could pose as somebody else and the rabbits wouldn't really know. You could just sort of wear the same hat as this other guy. They'd be like, yeah, that looks like the guy I know.
1: (laughs) What's interesting is that actually they have done studies of crows and crows are quite good at remembering human faces. So Mm -hmm. maybe I'm just a jerk. I don't know. Hard to tell.
0: I can't tell apart the crows either. I think the crows are coming for us, and that's our fate. They have a clear
1: advantage in this future society. (laughs)
0: Okay, enough
2: with this specious garbage, y'all. All All crows look the same. I've had it. I've had (laughs) it. (laughs) Next link? Next Next link. link. All right, this one's a quickie that goes to our fellow Texans. Ars Technica is reporting that scammers have been putting fake QR codes on parking meters to basically grab your deeds. So if you're in mm. Houston, Austin, or San Antonio and you are going downtown, do not use QR code stickers on the parking meters. But
0: you, you still have to scan it, right? <laughs> like you have to walk yeah. up and actively choose to scan it with your phone. Yes, you do. Okay. That is how QR codes work. I'm just, you know, because it seems like it's somehow going to reach out and get you, but you still have to interact with it. I guess it, it's the fact that they're tricking you into interacting with it because yes. it looks official. Okay. Yeah, it,
2: it is an opt-in scam and it's made more complicated by the fact at least the Austin downtown meters have been kind of upgraded or changed. Mm-hmm. And so there are like new instructions and different intakes and so it's easy to see how that might be confusing but As far back as December 20th, people attempting to pay for parking using these QR codes, you're just going to go to a fraudulent website and submit a payment to a fraudulent vendor. Hmm. They go to a quick pay parking website at the domain passportlab.xyz, which is- Oh,
0: that's (laughs) always suspicious. Yeah.
2: And so we're not really sure how many people have been tricked into paying these fraudsters, but know this, the city does not use QR codes because of situations Just like Hmm. these. So if you're not in Texas, don't worry about it. Yet. (laughs)
0: Like, I mean... A good idea spreads fast. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if this is already in some other cities. They just don't know it yet.
2: Yeah, I guess And me actually reading this article out loud for a podcast may have inadvertently contributed to the spread. So uh, <gasps>
0: now you've done it. Oh, gosh. Uh. If we have any criminals who are big fans, please don't. Please don't. I mean, parking downtown and paying for it is already such a scam. Yeah. Why yeah. would you kick someone when they're down? If they're right? already having to park downtown, they're not in a good place in their life.
1: Exactly. Just leave them alone. Like, (laughs)
0: See, but now I'm suspicious of all of those QR codes because I admit I didn't even have a reader on my phone until the pandemic, where now all of the menus are ah, hands free. Yeah, yeah. You have to use your own device to scan it. And so well, I had to break down and install a QR code reader and actually learn how to use it. Well, at least at the menu, they're not asking you
2: for the money on that platform, are they? It's just here is a There
0: there was one restaurant that did, but it was very, like the waitress was like, click there and like it was legit, I assume. If not, <sighs> we didn't pay for the meal. So either way, we're not the <laughs> ones who got scared. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include A Library the Internet Can't Get Enough of, The Attack of Zombie Science, and We Don't Know Why, But Being in Space Causes Us to Destroy Our Blood. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found at damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us and our ad-free content, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Weisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.